you can unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you can unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current as a 12-12-21. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. Anomalous consumer access. Number 3030. Call 800-490-1233 for disclosures and cost information. With great mojo comes great responsibility. Mojo Five O. Mojo Five O. We will make America great again. Sam Sorbo. Hey there, welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show. I'm joined by a special guest. Very excited to have this gal on the show, Lindsey Graham. She's the Patriot. Barbie, she's a loud, proud, pro-gun, pro-life, Jesus-loving, red-blooded, conservative, Republican woman. I lost count. It's a yeah. lot. Um, she's a fierce, fierce voice for conservative women. And she kind of le- just sort of fell into this position. She didn't really understand what she was doing when she started standing up for her salon and her rights. So welcome to the program, Lindsey Graham. Thank you very much. You listed everything I believe in. It just is the best intro ever. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, but you were saying um, right before we started that you kind of just, you know, sort of self-identified after, after a certain while prior to that, where did you fall politically? What, who were you politically like? So before defying mandates, I was um, raised conservative. I was raised Republican um, raised in the church. And so I had all of those deep seated grounded beliefs, but I was not very opinionated about them. I was not outspoken. And I usually wasn't very up to date on how my, how politics aligned with my beliefs. And I actually, I mean, I ran a hair salon too, and there's, there's rules. Don't talk religion or politics. So I couldn't, I didn't talk about Jesus and I didn't talk about, you know, who I voted for. But after reopening my business against lockdowns and enduring the worst cancel culture, it became very clear to me that the letters and emails and phone calls I was getting from the right side were, oh, thank you for standing up for our freedom. You're so brave. Thank you for fighting for what's right. And the left side, um, which was typically Democrat, was you're a racist. Um, you're a murderer. You care more about money than people's lives. And I went, oh, my goodness, if I have to draw a line here, (laughs) I'm going far right. Um, So they kind of created their own their own nemesis. But since since enduring that, I've really started looking more at politics and policies and how it's affecting families and small businesses. And I'm I've become a very, very outspoken political um, advocate. So talk to me about the cancel culture, because you said, you know, you you lived it right. Hmm. What is that yeah. like? I mean, all you were doing was saying, hey, if I shut down my business, I, I can't make a living and I need to make a living. They did not. They did not see it that way. They did not care. Um, of course, as we all know, they they don't like to actually argue or debate. They like to name call and slander and spread lies. Um, and I wasn't expecting cancel culture. I had never endured it before because I was so quiet about my beliefs. Not intentionally. It just wasn't important to me. Honestly, my political beliefs. And when I opened my salon and started reading some of the comments on like my first press conference, a lot of it was hatred, making fun of my looks, 
Um, a lot of it was slander, saying things about me that weren't true by people who didn't even know me. And then a lot of it was, yeah, basically, this is a pandemic. You're a murderer. You're just a rich, you know, white woman that wants to make money and you don't care about people. You're a selfish, greedy, you know, fill in the blank. The names were pretty horrendous. And it was shocking. It was very shocking at first because I couldn't possibly see it that way. There was no part of me that saw a situation where in any pandemic whatsoever, the government has the authority to come in and tell people how to handle it and how to make their own health decisions. I just don't see that. And I did not see it with this pandemic, of course, right away, because the numbers weren't matching the alleged headlines and the the propaganda and the paranoia that was being spread. So cancel culture for me was, was very unexpected. And um, at that time it targeted, it targeted something that, didn't hurt my feelings because I understood what I was fighting for my livelihood and my business, my family. And the fact that they couldn't see through anything to actually even consider that there was another version of the story. And that's that I was going to go bankrupt. If I did remain closed was kind of like, you know what, your, your naivety, your ignorance is something I can't deal with right now. Cause I'm fighting this fight over here. Um, I did endure cancel culture in a different way much later because uh, Black Lives Matter actually got on social media and said they were going to burn down my salon because I had been in the news for being a freedom fighter. And I did a call to arms and patriots showed up to to protect my salon. And that cancel culture was much worse because, as we know, apparently being, you know, being labeled a racist is the worst name you can call someone now in America. I don't know how, but um, I got labeled a white supremacist, a white nationalist, a racist. And that cancel culture went to the extreme and they made sure that they cost me all of my businesses. Oh, so did you eventually have to shut down the business anyway? I did. I I held on to my salon for another year after that. And I didn't close because of government mandates. I didn't close because of fines or government threats. I ended up having to close because cancel culture basically started spreading so many lies and hate about me that um, my salon became a controversial place to work. And so anyone that worked for me knew they'd be labeled a white supremacist. Right. And so that, that actually brought out more fire in you rather than less. Oh yeah. They, um, they made, they forced me to look at my identity in a different way. Um, And this is, I believe where my testimony kind of comes in is I've been a Christian my whole life, but this, this was the, the moment where God refined me. Because I had defined myself for so long as a successful business owner, you know, a great hairstylist. I had a I had an amazing reputation in my community, and I built the biggest salon in in probably the state. And I, that was consuming my life and consuming who I was. Um, but what happened was when people are able to say things about you that aren't true, and that can spread like wildfire, and it's printed, and it's reposted and it's shared and it's whispered about, you realize you can't trust people. You can't trust what people think about you. Um, My entire reputation in that sense, I felt like was ruined when I was trying to nonstop defend who I was and it wasn't working. It was sort of out of my control. It was out of my control. I had to give it all to God. I had to say, I can't get out of this. So I'm going to, I'm going to assume you're, you're doing this, allowing this to happen to me for a reason. And what I discovered was I felt important again, knowing that what I was doing was right and that God was thankful for what I was doing and that he had created me to be this person. 
and that I no longer had to worry about what things were being said about me, what things were being lied about. It, it, it changed everything. I mean, it, it paves the way for this future in, in, in politics is what I think, because I don't care what's written about me or what's said about me, especially the non-truths, because I don't owe anyone an explanation. I just answer to God. It, it's, it's really a remarkable story to think that your life could shift so drastically based on n- n- nothing of your own doing. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I mean really, all, you were simply reacting to an attack on your business mm-hmm. by defending yourself. And then the attack, of course, got worse. And you, you had to basically, you, you were just forced to shift lanes in a sense. Yes, what, absolutely. What do you think the future holds for you? Uh, before we go there, I just want to, you, you held on to the business for another year. You had perhaps the largest salon in the state, which is really a remarkable achievement for a single businesswoman, right? I Not mean, single, sold, married, but married. No, but, but sole, yeah, sole, was just sole uh, proprietor, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um and that, that actually has a special status with the United States government. <laughs> sole business, a sole practicing businesswoman has a special status. Mm-hmm. You are considered uh, a victim class or what have you. And so you would think maybe they could cut you some slack. Did you find, because I've noticed this more and more, that um, there's a bit of schadenfreude. And schadenfreude is when you're happy at someone else's sorrow. Mm. Um, you, you were, you were, you know, beating the competition. The competition must've been pretty happy that you were being attacked. That and the cancel culture, the leftists, the liberals, the Democrats, whatever you want to call it, the people in my community that hated me for what I did. I mean, they hated me. I was getting text messages, phone calls. It was vile. Some of the things that were being said to me via social media, they they celebrated publicly every time I was issued a new threat, every time I was issued a, a new fine, every time I, you know, outwardly spoke about the things that I was enduring because of, of standing up and fighting back and op- just opening my doors and working. That's all I did. They and celebrated. by the way, not just you opening your doors and allowing the people who worked for you uh, or worked at the salon to work to earn yes. money. And not only that, providing a service to the people who wanted the, their services. Right. And so all of those people are now deprived, right? Right. And um, you know, and that's like, it was such a controversial topic when I opened because people would say, it is not essential to get your hair done. And I would say to them, I'm not saying that them getting their hair done is essential. I actually think it's not. You're right. What's essential is that I make money for my family. My business is essential for me, not for my clients, for me to make money and provide for my family. I have the right to do it. And the government doesn't have the authority to tell me that when they deem something a pandemic, which now we know it was not, they have the authority to come and take that right away from me. And 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 take the right away from all the people who work at your salon who also need to provide for their families and themselves. Yes. And Sam, I was employing single moms, single women ex-military. I had veteran women that worked there. I had all women that were the main breadwinners for their families. We are talking about an occupation where we do not get maternity leave, paid maternity leave. We do not get health insurance. We do not get benefits. We don't get life insurance. 
We are so self-dependent that it's, it's one of the most self-dependent careers you can choose. So when they took that away from us, they took all the ability for us to have, you know, savings saved up to pay for, Oh, we're closed for two months. Not only can I, you know, not pay, pay my rent. I can't pay my personal bills either. It's like they targeted these small business owners that they knew would crumble if they did this to us. Well, they're individuals, right? And so it's easier to attack individuals than the big corporations. But the big corporations had a had a um, they they had they had uh, what's the word I'm looking for in the game? They they had an investment oh, skin in, the in the game. game. Yeah, yeah. They had so. yeah they had um, they had more they had money invested. I mean, think about the big businesses that profited off the pandemic. And the little people who the small businesses are who still threaten them, um, we all got shut down and a lot of a lot of businesses in America closed and, and went bankrupt and will never open back up again. So by the way, won. I think I think Nancy Pelosi thinks that it's essential that people get their hair done. She does. She got it done like three weeks later in California after I opened. How long were you closed for? I closed down the first initial six weeks. And if you recall, it was supposed to be two weeks and then it was two weeks again and two weeks again. And it was about that six week mark. I said, there is no way I'm going to sit around losing money, going bankrupt, going into debt while Kate Brown decides my future. That was our governor. And she's a crazy, crazy, crazy leftist Democrat. She's got mask mandates permanently, permanently in, in Oregon now. I said, she does not decide the future of my family. I decide the future of my family. God decides the future of my family. And that is six weeks was too much. I regret not opening up sooner, actually. Yeah, we all tried to play along initially because Mm -hmm. we we just didn't have information. But it, it became clear within those six weeks at some point that there were tremendous lies that were happening. Mm -hmm. And just because we knew that there were lies, we started doubting everything, right? Once right. you once you identify that there's a lie happening, then you start doubting everything. And now we've got, I don't know if you saw, but there's a, there's a lot of um, murmurs about the, the Super Bowl that just happened. And you had all of these celebrities there with no masks. And in fact, the Babylon Bee did a very funny kind of, they, they do satire, right? So they yeah. said that the celebrities came out and they confessed that they their masks were actually uh, invisible, that only the uber wealthy celebrities could afford the oh invisible masks. And that's why you didn't see them wearing masks. And that's yet so all funny. the children in California have to still yeah. wear masks to go to school, even though COVID by and large does not affect children, period, full stop. Right. It's so ridiculous. It's not about science. Yeah, it's not about science. Anyone that's still trying to claim it is, is, is so ignorant that it's almost, it's almost like you must be just officially brainwashed. You can't argue with those people. What it is now is, is straight compliance. Absolute compliance is the issue. And that's, what's really frustrating to me is that it was one thing for me to open when I did. um, And that was ballsy because we still hadn't found out what we know now, two years later, which is that this all was very much a sham. And so me opening was a little bit controversial. And I said, well, I don't want people to die, but I also don't believe that that's going to happen. And now here's the thing. You want people to have free choice. Hey, if you're too scared and you don't want to come into work, we'll give you a pass. If you're too scared and you don't want to come in to get your hair done, nobody's forcing you. That's right. But I want the opportunity to stay open, to provide my business services 
to provide for my family. And I don't believe that the government has the right to take that away from me when it is still granting that provision to other businesses. It's that simple. Sam, it's really not some, more complicated than that. No. And something you said in Liberty Lockdown was it made so much sense to me. And it for some reason, this was something I hadn't even considered at the time was that you said the people deciding who is and isn't essential are deciding that they themselves are essential to be making that decision. So the government, the governor is who, who's decided who she's essential. Who appointed job. you, Queen of Sheba? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I decide. Guess what? I get to decide who's essential. She's got her agencies all targeting me. Well, guess what they're doing when they're targeting me and threatening to take my license and threatening to shut me down and threatening to throw me in jail? They're getting paid to come threaten me. They're getting paid to tell me I'm not allowed to work, but they who's, can work. Who's paying so, them? The, me, me, my taxes. It's like the worst cycle of abuse I could possibly imagine. I'm paying you to come threaten me so that you can work so that I can't work. So it's unsafe right. to be in my salon unless you're here to find me. It's, it's, it's really pathetic. And because everything, everything boils down to education. This mm-hmm. is an example of the failure, the abject failure. And I don't hold out any hope anymore. It's an abject failure of our education system that there are individuals because let's let's face it, you're a crazy person, right? You, you you didn't know you had this in you, but you were pushed a little bit too hard. And you're the you're the kid on the playground who's not who's going to stand up to the bully and say, no, I won't do, you know, whatever. Stop telling me what to do. Right. Right. How many businesses and I mean, it's countless who didn't stand up because they are just compliant because they went to public school and they learned to obey. That's what our public schools have taught us to do. Nothing about education, really nothing about education. It's all about compliance and obeying. Absolutely. And, you know, I went to public school, but the difference is I was rooted in a God and a faith-based background. I came from a family who we believed our whole lives And you live a very different life when you have God and when you do not have God, not morally, ethically, not pedestal wise, but I'm just saying consciously you look, you're able to look at things differently because you have a Holy Spirit that lets you think critically, that gives you his wisdom, that guides you when you need it, whether you're asking for it or not. And I've said this repeatedly. I do not, I never felt God call me to open my salon or defy lockdowns. I did it because I'm a stubborn, hard-headed person, and I really didn't want to go bankrupt, and I kind of like to stick it to the man. And I find later that I believe God, that was God's spirit sort of bringing something up in me that would change the, the course of my life forever for his glory. And I'm grateful that even when I'm not asking for his help, even when I'm not asking for his guidance, he has already got the situation under control. And these people that are bowing down and complying to this tyranny, I feel like they're not going to bed at night saying, Lord, help me make the right decision. Lord, guide me. Lord, work in me. Lord, what's my role in this? Because we have an almighty God and his role is never to punish you. His role is never to take things from you and and, um, harm you. His plans are always for good, to prosper you. So this whole mass compliance thing is the effect of a nation that has defied God, taken God out of the school system, 
um, taken God, taken the Pledge of Allegiance out, taken, you know, the ability to pray in public schools and gather. It's all the result of a nation that doesn't consult the almighty power, which has more control over your life than you think. Well, and here's the thing is, you know, you're saying that you have the Holy Spirit, which is true. The other thing that it gives you is it gives you an idea that there is an authority above their authority. Right. And they don't like you to have that idea because right. they want to be large and in charge. And that's why they took, they took, they didn't take religion out of the schools. They took the Bible. Mm-hmm. They took Judeo-Christianity out of the schools because that's what you did, the Judeo-Christian ethic teaches is that God is supreme and everyone else is equal under that, basically, within, within uh, you know, the confines of the politics and stuff. But still, that everybody is answerable to God. And so, you know, you're coming at this and you're saying, hold on, let me check your authority. And I don't think you have the authority to tell me that, right? And right. there's so many people who don't have that because when they took the Bible out of school, they implemented a different religion and the religion it's basically at this point, the religion of government. Mm -hmm. And so these people think that government is God and therefore government can do or say whatever it wants and tell them what to do. And what they fail to realize is that government is made up of human beings, (laughs) sinners, just like everyone else. There's nothing special about them except that we pay their salaries. And, and what's special about them, what's working for them is the, the fear tactic, because, you know, I was just um, on a podcast in Las Vegas yesterday and they had lifted the mask mandate. And my friend said to me, if we were here last month for a birthday, we were here in Vegas and everyone was wearing masks. Well, now the mask mandate is lifted and no one is wearing masks. What does that tell you besides the obvious? What it tells me is people weren't wearing them because they were afraid of COVID. They were wearing them because they were compliant, which is a very big difference. People are scared of the government. That is a very scary place to be when your all your life decisions are based on being afraid of the consequences and the punishment of a government that we built. Yes. That's why people didn't open up with me. I'll tell you, um, I had to go to, I had a little accident. I had to go to the hospital the other day and they, um, and I injured my chin. They made me wear a mask despite the fact that my injury was literally on my chin. And I really didn't have an option because I really needed some medical attention, which turns out I didn't actually need, but I needed some reassurance. So that's fine. But today I had to go back to the doctor's office. And I literally had this conversation in my head with myself, and I encourage people to do this. Am I going to put a mask on for them if they insist? And I decided that I wouldn't. And I I went into the office and everybody's wearing masks. Nobody asked me to put the mask on. Interesting. It is. So I live in pandemic-free Florida, where a lot of people choose to wear masks. Now, that's fine. It shows their ignorance. I can't do anything for them. Um, If they go to my website, samsorbo.com, I have the CDC study that was done over 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, because I downloaded it onto my site that says that cloth masks are completely inefficient. They are not at all capable 
of preventing the spread of even large viruses, much less the small ones. And by all accounts, COVID is a very small virus. So virus going to virus, it's going to get you. If it doesn't get you today, it'll get you tomorrow. Take precautions, right? Right. But um, look, if somebody wants to wear a mask, that's fine. But I've started going into restaurants and telling the management that I am complaining because I find masks offensive. I think it makes the servant class like lower than the eating class. And that bothers me because I live in a free society where we don't have class structure. We have a meritocracy. So I'm just, I just want to encourage people um, really give some thought to how you personally can wage your own little war. Just, Mm -hmm. just calmly, just quietly. If I'd gone to the doctor and they said, would you put a mask on, please? I would say, Oh, I don't have one. Then they would get me one. I'd thank them. And I was planning to thank them and take it and not wear it. And if, right. if push came to shove, I was going to tell them that my doctor, and I do have a doctor who tells me not to wear the mask, that my doctor told me not to wear it. And then see what they do. Right. And just push it, Go push it, push them. it. And I decided yep. it was not that important for me to complete my medical appointment today. I just, I just made that decision. I'm like, you know what? I don't have to go through with this today. If I, if I put it off for another day or whatever, go see a different doctor. Like I can, I can manage that. And I'd rather do that. Yes. It's, it's a a hardship because it's like, ugh, who wants to bother with another appointment and another thing, whatever. But I decided for me, it was more important to stand on principle in uh, at this occasion. Now, does that make me a hypocrite when I don't stand on principle at the, at the um, hospital? No, because I really do need medical attention right then. So right. I have priorities, right? So I prioritize. Right. And sometimes your principles get caught up in your priorities. That's fine. I just want to encourage people, you can stand strong if you make the choice. And so I typically, I'll, I'll think it through before I get into the situation. Do I want to leave the store if they tell me to wear a mask? And I've been doing this for over a year now. Yes. <laughs> I've been, it's, right? It's exhausting, but it's, it's a fight worth fighting. I do this in the airport. I've been, I've flown 42 times in the last year and I've not worn a mask in the airport. And I run through the scenarios, same thing. I run through the scenarios in my head. What is security going to say? They're going to do the same thing. Do you have a mask? No. Do you need a mask? No. I mean, unless you're going to make me wear it. They hand it to me. I hold it. I wait for them to say, put it on. I put it under my chin. They say, pull it up over your nose. I do, but then I hold it out so I can breathe. Cause really for me, it's about, I have a right to breathe and you're not going to take that away from me. And even just on the airport at the airport yesterday in the plane, I said, okay, I'm going to walk on the plane without a mask. She'll tell me to wear it. And then I'll put my drink in my mouth. And what are they going to say? How far is this person willing to go to say, come on, ma'am, you're not always drinking. Well, maybe I am. Maybe I have a health condition that you don't know about and I'm dehydrated and I need to be drinking. Every second of this flight, are you going to tell me I'm not allowed to consume water? How far are you willing to go with that? And I got a flight attendant that was so crazy about me wearing my mask. She was on me every 10 seconds I was eating. She wanted me to pull my mask up while I was chewing. And I, it got to the point, Sam, where I said, well, obviously I'm not going to get, they're not going to land the flight and kick me off. They may ban me. I'm okay with that. But I was at the point where if she was going to say one more thing to me about my mask, I was going to say, I actually am feeling really hot and dehydrated and I think I need medical attention and therefore force her to say, 
well, you need to put your mask on. While I'm telling her I'm having trouble breathing and I'm feeling faint and I need medical attention, she's going to force the mask on me. I want to make this difficult for these people. I want to be fighting so hard that they get exhausted fighting back and they leave people alone. I feel like I'm growing a backbone just just listening to you. Like my backbone is calcified. <laughs> Thank you. I I'm pretty hardcore. My husband's like, oh my gosh, it's a it's a 24 hours a day fight for me. 24 hours a day. I, so, I and, find the, and the problem is you're fighting automatrons. Yeah, you're fighting programmed individuals. They're non-playing characters. They've been programmed yeah. to say the things that they said. Well, put it up over your nose, please. Put it up over your nose, please. Put it up over your nose, please. Like. Yeah. Right. Right. And so so what what people have to understand is that it's not personal. Sometimes it is. Right. Right. But by and large, it's not personal. They have a job to do. And a lot of these people that are telling you you have to wear your mask, they're afraid of you. I have learned that. Guess what I did on the flight yesterday? Tell me, because I want to encourage people who are watching now. I want to encourage them to stand for truth, right? So tell us. Okay, well then first, let me just say this. The the masks are mandated federally in an airport. They're not though. Allegedly. They they announced there's a law. There's no law. Nobody signed a law. Nobody signed anything. And you know what? I'm telling you, I've been in in an airport 42 times in the last year. I have not worn a mask in the airport once. No one that works in that airport, not the airline companies, not the ticket checking person has the authority to tell me in the airport to put a mask on. They don't, they're not a federal law enforcement officer. They're not a sheriff. They're not a deputy. So quite, they're not oh, a shoot. Officer. We're running out of time. So, so, so your response is sure. What's your authority for telling me that? What's your authority? Yep. And I tried to debunk them with a smile. I told the flight attendant yesterday, she went to tell me to put my mask up and I said, I just wanted you to see me smile at you. And she said, well, you have a lovely smile. And then I was walking past her. She forgot to tell me to put my mask up. Yeah, I had somebody. And she never said it again. I had somebody ask me if my mask was see-through, you know, like, and and I'm like, oh my gosh, what a beautiful smile you have. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on. Kill them with kindness. All right. Well, it's lovely to speak with you, Lindsey Graham. Thank you so much for coming on the program. How can people find you or follow you or whatever? Um, I have an amazing website, uh, patriotbarbie.com. And I actually sell my book there. I wrote a whole book about my fight with the government and how God has changed my life and changed my identity with him in this fight. And um, patriotbarbie.com is the best place to find me. You can follow all my social media there and including my new apparel line, which just came out last week. Oh, very exciting. Yes. Okay. We'll put that in the links to patriotbarbie.com. Thanks so much for coming on the Sam Sorbo show. Thank you, Sam. Hi, Sam Sorbo here. Just want to update you on a couple of things. Kevin and I will be speaking in Irving, Texas at the Life 2022 Life 2022. That's Living in Freedom Expo. It's going to be a fantastic event. So we hope you'll be able to make it out to Dallas for that. And then on Saturday at the end of next week, we will be speaking at the Moms for America breakfast at CPAC. So go to CPAC online for more information about that. I just love Moms for America, love what they're doing, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, let's see. Also, I've got two home education conferences coming up where I will be teaching 
what you need to do to get started to taking your kids out of public school and getting them on the road to a healthy education. Uh, So join me for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a day and a half conference, a Friday evening and a Saturday all day. Um, One will be April 29th and 30th. And the other one is June 24 and 25. Both of them are here in Southern Florida, Uh, The first one's in Fort Lauderdale. The second one will be in Port St. Lucie. Very excited about that. So be sure to join me at one of those or both. You're welcome to come to both. And don't forget to check out the show School's Out with Sam Sorbo on Epic TV. Thanks so much for listening to and watching the Sam Sorbo Show. All right. Welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show. I'm now joined by a very special guest. This is someone I just met, Brian Gallagher. He set out to bring wholesome children's books to children's bookshelves. And I, as you know, am a crusader against the new fiction that is uh, invading children's literature and youth literature specifically. And so when I saw this and I went to his website and I saw the books, I just thought, I got to get this guy on the program because he's he's a man after my own heart, so to speak. Uh, Welcome to the program, Brian Gallagher. Thank you, Sam. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to share about Good and True Media and who we are. Yeah. So Good and True Media. And you've got it looks like you've just got a lot of moms who are writing books for their kids. Yep. Um, but they want to share the they want to share the wealth. Right. Absolutely. So our slogan is timeless lessons free from modern nonsense. And we, uh, you know, walking around Target as a father of four, I'm looking at all the children's books on the shelves and that just seemed to be, uh, you know, very intentionally uh, promoting certain things that I don't like. And I want to protect my children's innocence. And so many parents do. Uh, so I started reaching out on Instagram and met uh, many uh, large uh, influencers, great women, uh, living a, a great Christian life, and uh, we contracted them to do a book with us. And uh, we now have 10 books, and it's been a year, and we already have 10 books. It's incredible. So, Yeah, I mean, if you go to the bookstore, you will find, if you go to Barnes & Noble or any of these bookstores, you'll find uh, baby board books called Woke Baby, Anti-Racist Baby, A is for Activist. I mean, the the invasion into children's literature and, and, you know, the unsuspecting parent or the, or the, the, the friend who's like, what book should I get? And the book attendant or the, you know, who the clerk who works at the store just says, well, a lot of people like this book. And all of a sudden you're giving a child some, you know, critical race theory nonsense and teaching them that they are an oppressor or they are a a victim for life. I mean, all of this, it's a terrible thing what we're doing to children right now. And so you're offering kind of a light in the darkness. And I just, I I love that. I just, I, I love what you stand for. Well, thank you. We, we are all about building virtue and unfortunately modern literature, if you can even call it literature, really promotes one virtue, and that's kindness. And kindness is often code word for tolerance. Um, and so we are exploring the other ones. We have a book coming now that's, out. Before, before you go there, because I love these conversations. So yeah. we're talking about virtue. I, first, I'd, I'd love to know your definition of virtue. Mm-hmm. But secondly, you say you're, that, that a lot of books promote kindness. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I'm not disagreeing with you. And that that equates to tolerance. But you have to understand the, the average person who, who listens to this goes, well, what's wrong with tolerance? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And what's virtue. wrong with tolerance? Why is that not the why is that not our highest virtue? Our highest aim should be tolerance, should it not be? Sometimes uh, tolerance is at the uh, expense of conviction. And uh, so I think what's end up happening, especially with children, is they're born on these um, these flimsy ideals that it's like, OK, well, just, you know, I don't know what I think because I'm just being told what to think by the world. We take a classical definition of virtue and it's always built upon Christian principles. And we, we explain that virtues are good habits that you have to work at. And more importantly, the family is there for your support. So a, a lot of families and, and a lot of new fiction for, for children, well, I'm thinking of Disney and other things, that the family's kind of broken down a little bit. Um, <laughs> In every Disney movie ever made, parents yeah, exactly. die. Exactly. But, you know, I mean, I know there's some I know there's some bad dads out there, but we're not all that bad. There's some, there's some good ones out of us, you know, I mean. No, according to modern uh, culture, all dads are stupid and fat and, uh, you know, half crazy and whatever. Right. Yep. Yeah. And we all and we all wear leather jackets and smoke cigarettes in the house. Uh, you know, so uh, our, our books sh- all have a very, very strong child to parent bond. And. Uh, I love one of ours. One of ours really showcases the, the the son and father relationship, and that that was a joy because I was like, I haven't seen this anywhere, so let's make it happen. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. But also going back to this idea of tolerance and that tolerance is is always good. Well, okay, so you have a robber come into your house. Are you supposed to tolerate that? Exactly. Exactly. And so, no, it's not always tolerance is not always the best thing. Kindness is not always the highest, uh, the highest aim. And in uh, fact, sometimes kindness is um, is is the worst thing. So yeah. my son thinks he can fly. Should I let him out of kindness go up to the roof and jump off? Yeah. No, absolutely not. Exactly. So we have to, you know, there are parameters on all of these things. Yep, Absolutely. Um, it's fascinating because I teach uh, a 10th grade class and we are wrestling right now with the definition of virtue uh-huh. and the Socratic uh, dialogue with Mano about what is virtue, what, what is virtue constituted of, and can we break it down into separate parts or should we deal with it as, a, as one piece, as one whole thing and um, stuff like that. And of course, that's more advanced than your children's books, but well, <laughs> um, it's such a good discussion to have. And it's a discussion that is sorely lacking in yep. our education environment, in, in the entire system. It's, yep. No one ever considers it. It's just be kind. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny you, you say that uh, one of our books, actually, one that I wrote is called Justice on the Acropolis. And they go back in time to meet Socrates and they attend his trial um, and they, they talk to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle about what virtue is and what justice truly means um, and how the ends don't justify the means. And you, you know, two wrongs don't make a right and those kinds of principles. And that's our young chapter reader series, The Virtue Adventures. But it's kind of funny because that, that you're teaching on, uh, you know, the, the, the Socratic dialogues. And one of my books, they go back and actually see Plato writing the dialogues. So or recording them. So um, that's awesome. Yeah. So are you a classical uh, education guy? Yes, absolutely. My, my children are in a classical curriculum uh, school right now, which is very exciting. And I went to a small Catholic college called Christendom college, and there's only 400 students and I have to wear shirts and ties to classes. And I, I always say it's kind of like dead poet society, but with a better ending. 
Um, and <laughs> so, but yeah, I've, I've read um, my, I minored in philosophy and I did political science and economics. So uh, really steeped in, in great literature, great history, but then also the, the political science and philosophy. Right. So. It's funny because um, the, I, I'm in a homeschool co-op basically, yeah. and we meet once a week and uh, a couple of weeks ago they had pajama day which I, I rail against pajama day. I don't, every other day of the week for homeschoolers is pajama day. Why <laughs> yeah, exactly. are we wearing pajamas to class? <laughs> and so I'm instituting a dress like a boss day. <laughs> I like that. That's good. Uh, because, well, because the job of the parent is to cast a vision for the child yeah. that is higher than what the child would naturally aspire to, yeah. not lower than what the child should aspire to, right? Absolutely. So I don't know why you're why we're we're setting up these kids for pajama day unless <laughs> yeah. they wore suits and ties every other day of the week, and this was like a break from that. I I don't get it. Megan Cox Gurdon wrote in uh, in Primus, which is a Hillsdale publication. Yeah, she wrote this, and she's she's uh, been sounding the alarm about young about youth uh, literature for quite a while. She wrote books show us the world, and in that sense. Too many books for adolescents act like funhouse mirrors, reflecting hideously distorted portrayals of life. And then she d- talks about how the first person narrative that's typically used imprisons the youth and keeps them embroiled in turmoil, which is very similar to their hormones, rather than drawing them out. But good classic literature and likely books that you're involved in producing now draws the children out. So they go outside themselves and they, um, you know, it's sort of like we have a, um, a, a an avatar that yep. gets to try things and we get to see our avatar try the things and figure out if they'll work for us or not. Yep. Um, rather than just being embroiled in what, what actually has become a lot of horror and the horror books for kids are um, there's a formula. So every five pages, there's like a jump scare. Yeah. And it's it's all just an adrenaline rush and there's no literary literary value to it at all because the people that write it don't barely write in complete sentences a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah um, you're absolutely right. Whereas if you go into, you know, we're we're studying right now a passage to India. And I said to the kids yesterday, I said, you know, you have to understand you're not assigned reading it, which is it's a difficult book to read because of some of the, the, the construction of his sentences and the way he uses words together. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're not assigned a passage to India so that you get a taste of what it was like under the British rule in India. That's not why. I mean, that's a perk. Yeah. You get to see what that was like. You get to experience it a little bit. But we started taking apart some of the sentences and the expressions that the author used. And I mean, this is a tremendously gifted author. And, um, and I pointed out that it's not just the expression that gives us the sense of, of where we are, right? It it gives us a sense of heat and humidity, but it gives us even more the sense of the oppressive nature of the British regime over the Indian people. Right. So it's, it's layered. It's a layered writing that just doesn't, it's, it's barely being, even talked about today, much less taught or or acknowledged or emulated, right? Right. Yeah, I like to say that we kind of try to put the literature back in children's literature. Nice. <laughs> and I believe uh, it. 
Yeah. And uh, I actually took that. I took a uh, Hillsdale class online. I highly recommend. I love Hillsdale College, but they have a class on children's literature for adults. And in that class, they really uncover some of those old classics and why it's so important and, and you know, the structure of a fairy tale and, and all those kinds of things. So what we've done, too, is we've been trying to retell the classics in a certain way. So we actually have a uh, nursery rhyme edition of the Odyssey and Aesop's Fables. And Yes, I saw coming. that. I got excited when I saw that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a joy to put those together and obviously a tremendous uh, sense of responsibility to make sure that the story is you know constructed well, but kind of introduces, we call them poetic primers because it's right. like, it's like the first introduction to these tales. And so, you know, it's literature is so very important for children and they're sponges and they're learning through the eyes of these protagonists. And, and, it, and it is a shame where it's going right now. And they're learning... What are they learning through the eyes of the protagonists? Why is it important? Yeah. Oh, in my books or just in general? No, just in general. Like what would Hillsdale say why it's important? I think that they would say that it's, it's important because they're learning. uh, Well, first of all, virtue, what the consequences of actions they're, they're learning, you know, principles and morals uh, and all, and all, all those kinds of things that, that form our development. Um, I think it's really important that they're able to kind of see someone screw up and they can experience uh, the lesson learned uh, without having to screw up themselves, you know, uh, to, to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and not also the, the resolution uh, is really, really important. So, right. I, I've, I've met a lot of role models in the pages of books, you know, uh, people that I aspire characters. I try to aspire to be a little bit more like, um, right. Which is not to say that we, that there aren't some, some good books that are being written current day, sure. but I would say that the test of time is a really good uh, yeah. rubric by which to judge a book. Right. And so there are plenty of classic books yeah. that you can go to uh, to get all of these great lessons. Yeah. And then as the children grow, then they become better at judging what they're reading and they can read new, new literature and decide if it's, if it's something of value, if they're getting sure. something yeah. valuable from it or not. Um, yeah. But I love the fact that you're introducing very young children to the Odyssey that it's an epic tale and oh. it has lasted, what is it? 2000 years old or older? I mean, yeah, it's, it's yeah older. Um, um, it's, it's not as well, uh, what is it? It's not as well, um, uh, cited yeah. is that the word I'm looking for. Well, researched as the Bible. Yeah. It has, it has fewer, uh, uh, versions mm-hmm. and they don't date as far back as it, as it oh, uh, to have been. Yeah. So, but it's still, you know, one of our classic texts and, and it's so just, great for children to develop a love for this yeah. before they get into studying Greek or, or reading, uh, reading it at length. One of, the, one of the things that I think real literature does offer children is an appreciation for mystery. And I don't mean mystery like, you know, boxcar children, hardy boys, whodunit kind of mysteries. I mean the things that don't quite make sense in our world that are all around us, Right. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is uh, the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. And I absolutely love that. And I think that whenever you find the right book, a child meets wonder face to face. They're in awe. They, they don't quite understand it, but they're, they're, they're soaking it in. And as we know, they're sponges. I mean, they, 
they, they can take that with them and, uh, and see, you know, God's work throughout, throughout life and, and, uh, how they, where's that quote from? Them. Uh, I believe it's GK Chesterton. It's either Chesterton yeah. or, or, or Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis might have might have said. I think it's Chesterton. The yeah. Riddles of God. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's he he's a quotable. <laughs> so well, so is C.S. Lewis. Absolutely. Yeah, and my favorite and our logo for Good and True Media is inspired by Aslan from Narnia. Um, yes. Uh, we just finished reading those at home, and they're they're an incredible an incredible series and. You know, we have three core beliefs at Good and True Media. The, the first is that God exists and he is good. That's that's number one. Number two is there's a such thing as right and wrong. And I do fear that that's under attack right now in, in literature is there's uh, such a such a focus on subjective truth. And it's like, oh, my truth. I'm living my truth. And you can uh, you know find out what your truth is. And I tell my kids, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> And then the third is the family is the backbone of society. And as we discussed earlier, every Disney movie, you know, there's a breakdown of the family. And I think kids should see families at work in in the books they read. Uh, I know that everyone's family situation is different, and I'm I'm definitely sensitive to that. But a family is a support structure for for children's developments. And and I think it's important to see protagonists go to their parents with a lesson learned or go to them for help. And maybe they might emulate it at home themselves. And it might actually start some conversation about virtue and about, you know, good qualities and morals and household when they encounter that book. So that's what we're trying to do at Good and True Media is just kind of help the family come a little closer, purify the bookshelf a little bit and tell some great fun stories while still uh, leaning into the character development side of things. Well, you know, you got a special place in my heart because I do the same thing with films. Yeah. Yeah. You know, making yeah. films for people that are uplifting and inspirational yeah. Based on, I like to base them on true stories because, um, you know, you you go see a Superman or a Spider-Man movie yeah. and you know that you're not a superhero and you know that you've never been bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> and so yeah. you're not going to be able to swing from building to building or whatever. Right. Yeah. But when we see true stories of truly heroic individuals um, or when we read about people who who happened in, in previous history and that and they. And they were real, right? Yeah. The, the real ones are the ones that are the most amazing because then we really have something that we could aspire to. Yeah. And, um, and I think that that gives people hope. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And hope actually, I think is, you know, it's classified as a virtue, at least by tradition, but hope is one of those things that I think our world needs more than ever. You know, it's, everything's very dark and uh, desolate. It seems uh, everywhere you look, but Hope is something we have to practice and our children, like one of the books that are is releasing at the end of the month is called the American dream of brave and young. And it's uh, written by Brooke Rabel and her hashtag or her handle is the Southernish mama. And she works, her husband works in Capitol Hill. And so she's very patriotic. She lives in DC. And um, she said, our children aren't growing up with a sense of patriotism. They aren't growing up with a sense of, um, you know, uh, um, Proud, a pride no. in their in no. Their well, the culture is telling us that patriotism is xenophobic and it's evil yeah. and it's yep. racist and all right. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a shame because you know, I mean, when I was growing up, I put my hand over my heart and I said the pledge of allegiance before class, and you know, I always said when I said my prayers at night, I thank God for my country and. Um, so we wanted, we, we set out to make a book that kind of, um, tried to instill that sense of, uh, um, appreciation for our country, but it also came with a very simple 
point. And it is that freedom is not just doing whatever you want. Freedom is a great responsibility comes with freedom to do what is what you should do. Um, and so there's a moral duty to freedom. And so we're teaching that through our books while also trying to have, you know, a, a restore an appreciation for our country. Um, and that was a really fun book to, to write and or to, to publish and work with. The illustrations are beautiful. Comes out at the end of the at the end of the month. And um, but yeah, that's what we do with all of our books. We, all right. So to- I'm excited. I want to I want to order books now. But um, I also want to tell you I've got two conferences coming up that I'm holding, and my main focus is to get people to take their kids out of public schools because yeah. the school system damages children. The system is geared against children. It's absolutely geared against the family. It forms a wedge between the child and the parent um, and, and so on and so forth. And so I'm having these two conferences and I'd love to have you uh, somehow represented at the conferences. Um, I'm putting your name on the list of referrals so that people know, you know, because people go to these conferences, I'm going to teach them how to home educate, basically how to take their kids out and get started down the path. And what what they hopefully what they will discover is that the the gift that we have in this nation in every state where we are free to educate our children ourselves is yes it's an awesome responsibility but it's also a gift that keeps giving and so eventually they'll figure out that it's not them that needs to teach the children it's the children that are there to teach them uh and so so in any case i'm holding these um conferences and I'd love to be able to have people at least, you know, either have some representation or something so that they can can see what they might um, be getting if they and, and go to your website and order books. Because uh, I'd love to get this vision into the hands of parents. I think it, it helps further the cause. And this this last one that you're just coming out with you know, instilling patriotism in our kids. And by the way, they're just waiting for that. They're dying yeah. for it. Oh, yeah. Give me a cause. Give me something to work toward. Give me something to be proud of, right? Yeah. Children are, they're just begging to be proud of whatever. Oh. And they, they bring you their little drawing and it's really not a very good drawing, but they're so proud of it. And will you be proud of them for it? And of course you are. You're their parent, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And we ought to be feeding that. We ought to be happy to provide that for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I always, what's great about my position is I'm publishing children's books. I'm writing a few myself and I have four kids at home. I have a 10 year old and a nine year old and I have a two year old and a one year old. So wow. I know if the nursery rhymes uh, hit well with the, with the baby. And I know if the young chapter readers are, are, are good with the, the older, the older kids, but, uh, and they're, they're my toughest, toughest critics. I mean, they're, they're great editors. They tell me everything that's wrong, but, uh, and they catch every typo. But, um, another thing too, that's important, I think for children is when we were growing up, like there's been a lot of studies done about how children learn differently. Right. And that's a be- that's a beautiful thing about homeschooling is the pacing that you can have. We homeschooled last year. One of my children is a bookworm. He can he can read everything so quick in one night and like not sleep. The other can't. He just I don't know if it's I don't know what it is, but um, you know, so but with all of our books, we have audio drama versions as well for auditory learners. 
Nice. Yeah. And that was really important to us because I want all of all children, no matter what their brain is wired, like, you know, where all of our brains are wired a little bit differently, but to still get this great message and, and, and enjoy and engage with these books. So I would love to come to these conferences, sign me up um, and, you know, good and true media. I, I, we'll come up with an awesome conference deal for everybody. Um, and That's yeah, right. thank you. All right. So we'll be in touch, but thank you so much for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If anybody wants to see more, go to goodandtruemedia.com. And uh, I really appreciate it, Sam. Thank you for having me. All right. So that's it for us right now. Thanks so much for joining me. This is the Sam Sorbo Show. could unlock more cash than you realize from your home's equity with a cash out refinance today. In the last year, average home values have gone up nearly 20%. And with Rocket Mortgage, you could unlock thousands in less than three weeks. But you've got to act right now before rates go up. So when you're looking to unlock the cash in your home, Rocket can. Call 8338-ROCKET today or go to rocketmortgage.com to get started. Rocket. Rates current at the 121 Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states. And access access.org. Number 3030. Call 800 for disclosures and cost information.